Revelation chapter 14 or the end of 14, after God showed John a vision at the beginning of this chapter of the victorious Lamb and His sealed, protected choir army of the redeemed standing on Mount Zion, John next hears three angelic angels or three angelic angelic angels. That's probably the smartest thing I've ever said. Three angelic announcements of the final judgment in verses 6 through 13. Now he will see a vision of the end of time harvesting of the earth. And God will show it to him in two parts. So that's where we are. That's where we're looking. This vision picks up on the message or the witness of the prophet's prediction in the Old Testament of the future coming of the Lord as a harvest. That's often how they talked about it. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. That's the prophet Joel in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Even the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So this is a a common theme. And, And so because of passages like that one, the common or normal expectation in Israel was that when the Messiah finally came, he would immediately execute this harvest judgment. And uh, this is, I, I think I've, I've probably used this picture before. It kind of helps us understand this. But try to think of the Old Testament prophets and really Old Testament Israel as, as driving towards a mountain range. Think of the prophecy they were given, like looking at a, a range of mountains, right? And if you are very far driving on a road towards the mountains, it looks like all those mountains are right on top of each other. It's just a, you know, a, a panorama of mountains that are stuck right on. But then when you get up to them and start going through them, you realize that this mountain you thought was right here is way beyond, miles beyond what it looked like when you were back there. That's kind of how it would have been when Jesus comes and begins to, to speak and to preach. And we see that they see that the fulfillment of these things looked like it was going to happen all at once, but it's actually in the words of Jesus they find spread out over what has now been thousands of years. They couldn't have seen that or didn't see it at the time. They, they believed when the Messiah finally came, that's what he would do. Text like Joel 3, he would immediately execute judgment. So you can imagine how um, disorienting the teaching of Jesus was with all the Romans there in Israel occupying it. And he seems to be completely unconcerned with addressing that in his life and in his ministry. But when Jesus finally comes... He reveals through the parables, if you remember, Jesus said that the parables would reveal things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. He reveals through the parables of the sower and of the tares among the wheat that the Messiah had come. Jesus had come to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom of God. So when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, he isn't coming as a grim reaper. He's coming as a patient planter in Matthew 13, 1 through 30 and by sowing the word as seed so something that's vulnerable to all these threats in the world's hostile environment Jesus instead brings in a harvest of grace in his first coming they didn't see two comings they saw one and he continues that harvest of grace through his gut through the gospel witness of the church of you and I then in the parable of the tares Jesus reveals that the final harvest the prophets foretold 
when the weeds are separated from the wheat, would come only at the end of the age in Matthew 13, 40. Here, tonight in Revelation 14, John sees this final separation of the wheat from the chaff in his vision here. So John has brought us once again in this cycle here in the middle to the end of history. The harvest is implemented by two heavenly beings in response to two different angelic commands. And so there's a harvest of grain here and there's a harvest of grapes. Two questions arise from these two visions. Who is this one spoken of in verse 14? The one like a son of man or the son of man who harvests the grain. And then do the grain and the grapes here symbolize the same people, the same groups of people or different groups of people for whom this great harvest at the end of time has different outcomes. God will harvest the earth to reap his faithful redeemed and his enemies where the blood of Christ will save forever, but the blood of the unredeemed will flow in judgment forever. And so let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask that you would enlighten us tonight by your grace through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to see Christ for us in this passage, to understand what you breathe into it and why you did it, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the unsearchable riches of Christ for life and for doctrine. And this we ask and I pray you would help me to preach to that end and fill me with your spirit that I might accomplish your will through your grace in me tonight. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 14 of chapter 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. So one like a son of man. Now, again, the Bible has prepared us to read that sentence or that phrase a certain way. One like a son of man appears on a white cloud and an angel coming out of the temple tells this one like a son of man to harvest the earth with his sickle. And the harvest here is a harvest of grain in verse 15. It's time for this harvest because the grain is fully ripe. Fully ripe grain would be dried, yellowed stalks, bearing heads of mature seed. God has seen all he needs to see for this harvest. The grain is ready. It's ripe. The one like a son of man is sitting on a white cloud. He's crowned with a golden crown and he's holding a sharp sickle. Now, obviously here, the allusion is to Daniel's vision of one like a son of man coming with the clouds on a cloud to the ancient of days in his heavenly court back in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Revelation has been alluding to that often before in chapter one, verse 13 in John's opening vision. We also see one like a son of man who in one seven is promised specifically to be coming with the clouds referring to the second coming of Jesus in judgment. So John's readers would have had a very good reason to identify the harvester in verse 14 as Jesus himself. 
the one for whose promise coming the church is waiting. All the language here, exclusive to the one like a son of man, points to it being the one Daniel saw in his vision, whom God has revealed as his own son. Now, there are different ways to take that. Some don't agree that this is Jesus. For one thing, it's strange. You don't really see this, that uh, Jesus, the Son of God, would receive a command from God through an angel. That seems beneath him, as well as the fact that you have that phrase, another angel, mentioned in verse 15, which, which might seem to say that the one like a son of man is also an angel, and here's another angel, right? A created being. And Jesus even said in Matthew thirteen thirty nine in the parable of the tares among the, the, the wheat that the reapers were angels. But... This picture in verses 14 through 16 seems to focus on this one's submission to the timing of the Father's sovereign hand. That this one is coming out because the harvest is ripe. Something Jesus spoke often about, his submission to the Father's timing while he was on the earth, Mark 13, 32 and other places. There are three other angels, another angel, you'll see that refrain in the harvest visions that doesn't demand though that the one like a son of man is the same kind of messenger they are they are other in the sense that they're related to the three angels who just announced the end in verse 6 verse 8 and verse 9 that's how they're other they're like that one between these two groups of three angels and set apart from them in verse 14 By a crown, by a cloudy throne, and by his title, one like a son of man, I believe, is Jesus the Messiah, the final judge, the son of man whom John saw at the beginning of his visions. I think this is Jesus in verse 14. Now, we need to ask whether the grain harvested by one like a son of man and the grapes harvested by the angel in these next verses, are they the same groups of people here? Or are they different groups? That helps us understand the meaning. Let's pick up verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Notice the difference between 17 and 14. Both have sickles, but that's all that makes them similar. And another angel, verse 18, came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress wine press was trodden out to, outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 Stadia. That's about 184 miles is that many stadia. So there are really four kind of accepted views of the grain and the grapes. Okay. The first view says that the grain and the grapes symbolize the same group of people. And both scenes are showing us the harvest of the wicked. Right. A second view. So both are bad. The harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes are both on wicked people, they're being reaped because they're wicked. A second view is that the grain and the grapes symbolize the same group of people, but they both refer to the salvation of the church through martyrdom. The third view says that the harvest of the earth gathers the church and gathers rebellious unbelievers, 
The gathering and crushing of the grapes in God's wine press of wrath shows the judgment of the wicked. The fourth view is that the harvest of the grain symbolizes the gathering of the church for salvation, while the harvest of the grapes symbolizes the gathering of the wicked for destruction. I think the fourth view in the text makes the most sense. I don't think the second view that the grain and grapes symbolize the same group and both groups or both scenes refer to the salvation of the church through martyrdom. The reason I, I, I wouldn't say that I don't think that view picks up enough on the imagery of Joel chapter 3 verse 13, which is how we get so much of the wording here. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow. Why? For their wickedness is great. So the treading of the grapes then pictures retribution to sinners for their wickedness. Martyrs aren't being reaped because they're wicked. That would be rebellious sinners having the wrath of God poured out on them. And the harvesting and the treading of grapes has that connotation, judgment, wrath throughout Revelation. So wine and the wine press are associated with God's wrath against evil. When we see those images That's what we're seeing here in verse 10. We'll see the exact same wording later in chapter 19, verse 15. But the first and third views, I I, I don't think those work because while Joel spoke of only one harvest, John sees two, or at least in two parts, one of grain, the other of grapes. The harvesters are distinct, right? They're distinct, but greater prominence is given to the one like a son of man who harvests the earth than to the angel who gathers the grapes. That's two different things, and they aren't presented in the same way. The harvest of the earth is the grain that is ripened by drying in the ear. In other words, that grain has done its work. It's finished with something. It's not ripe for judgment. It's ripe for reaping. While the earth's vine, right, Yields ripened grapes full of juice. I think this might be the only time in the New Testament grapes are pictured that way, fully ripe. But the harvesting of the earth is completed in a single act, if you'll notice, in 14 through 16. While the harvesting of the vine comes in two actions. First, the gathering, then the treading of the grapes in the winepress. Also remember the first view that the text refers to the same group and both show the harvest of the wicked, that's lacking because the Lamb's victorious choir army, back in verse 4 of this chapter, was described as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. And that first fruits imagery is almost always positive, recalls the Old Testament feast of weeks at the start of wheat harvest, all the way back in Exodus twenty-three sixteen, which encourages us to anticipate the full and final harvest of the lamb's wheat into his barns. That what we're, that, that's what we're seeing in verses 14 through 16. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 3.12, especially Matthew 13.30. So if martyrs and other believers who have died in persevering faith in the first five verses make up the first fruits already gathered on Zion to praise God and the lamb, when we get to 14, we're at the end of history... Not while history is going on, but the end of it, the rest of the grain to be gathered by this Son of Man would be the complete, the final, the full harvest 
of all his saints. So the end of history will not only bring a great harvest for Christ's sake as he reaps his people, the saving sweep of his sickle gathers in his faithful followers, but also a great harvest for God's wrath will take place as Christ's enemies are gathered in to be crushed in God's winepress. And so the command to harvest the grapevine of the earth, that comes through another angel in verse 17. And this angel is the one who has authority over the fire and comes out from the altar in verse 18. We have to remember there, in the sacrificial rituals in both the tabernacle and the temple, in Israel's sanctuaries, the altar was associated with two things. Remember, the blood of slain animals and the fire that consumed their carcasses. Back in chapter 6, verse 9 of Revelation, John saw the souls of martyrs under the heavenly altar, remember, where the blood of sacrificial animals normally flowed, and he saw an angel draw fire from the altar, from which the prayers of the church ascend as incense, in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, to throw that fire in judgment on rebellious earth dwellers. This angel, who has authority over the fire of judgment now, brings God's command to gather rebellious humanity and crush them in God's winepress until their blood, the blood of those who shed the martyr's blood now, flows like bright red wine. The heavenly altar bears witness to God's justice in giving these bloodthirsty persecutors their own blood to drink as it's poured out. See that image again later in 16. Four through seven. And so the harvest of grapes from the vine of the earth is accomplished by the second of the three angels mentioned in these harvest visions. So just like the vision of the Lamb's army as first fruits for God and the Lamb in heaven, back in verse four, foreshadowed the harvest of grain here in verses 14 and 16 at the end of history, the angels' pronouncement that rebels will drink the wine of God's wrath in verse 10 foreshadowed the grape harvest here and the crushing of the wicked in God's winepress in verse 19. The winepress belongs to God. And God is the one who will trample every grape that's cast into it. So that's what you're seeing in chapter 14. The victorious army of God sealed and protected in the first five verses as history continues. Victorious, right? In chapter, in, in verses 6 through 13, is a description of the wicked. Then, in the end of the chapter, in verses 14 through 20, is the harvesting of both of these groups at the very end of history, the full number of them. The wine press belongs to God, and God is the one who will trample every grape that's cast into it. That's the imagery we're getting. You, Most of you know this, that the, the grapes, were, when they were ripe, were, were thrown into this wine press this this you know circular normally or square um, all these grapes and you would get in and pull your robe up a little high and you would stomp them until it was just juice this is precisely again what the prophet isaiah foretold in isaiah chapter 63 and i'm going to read just verses one through three and verse six and i'm doing this so we get a sense of how the bible's imagery comes together in Revelation. All these things that were put into motion through the prophets and throughout history 
In Revelation, they're culminating. All right. And so listen to this from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. And what you'll see in Isaiah often, I hope this, this helps just with some clarity, is that these judgments are confined to certain nations. But then the imagery of them is picked up in Revelation and they're global. They're earthly. Right. And so there's same thing you see in the book of Revelation itself, this kind of progression towards localized judgment. And then global judgment, entire judgment, historical judgment. Listen to Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments, spattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. Skip down to verse 6. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. You see that two sides to that. Trampling, make them drunk. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. In Isaiah... Wine symbolizes God's judgment, God's wrath in two ways, just like it does in Revelation. God's enemies are trodden as grapes, like to make wine, grapes are trodden, and their blood is the wine that flows from God's wine press. But also, the beverage God uses to intoxicate his enemies and render them senseless. Right? That's two functions of wine or grapes in the end-time teaching of Scripture, or in the eschatological teaching of Scripture. In verse 10 here, in Revelation 14, God's enemies will drink the cup of His wrath. They'll be put into a stupor by it. But are also the grapes that were thrown into the press in the first place. And their blood will flow as high as the bridles of war horses. That's an image for a lot of blood flooding the land here to its borders in verse 20. Later in chapter 19, John will see the word of God riding on a white horse this time. His robe stained with blood, as in Isaiah 63. Why is your robe stained with blood? What have you been doing? He's ready to strike down the nations with the sword of his mouth and to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so, here at the end of chapter 14, when God sweeps his sickles, It brings the final harvest of the earth. And in so doing, it separates grain from grapes, wheat from tares, sheep from goats. So the current system of power will be reversed, beloved. It will be God who determines the destiny of people everywhere. The earth dwellers, as Revelation calls them, that is those who worship idols, worship the beast, worship its image, the evil state. Right, The worldly authorities allied with Satan that today, right now as we speak, are treading the holy city of the church under their feet. And 11 verse 2 will themselves be trampled by the avenger of the church in chapter 14 verse 20. Their blood flows from a wine press, if you'll notice, outside the city, away from God's holy people, separated from him. And so... The ones who belong to earth's so-called great city that wages war against God's church in 11.8 
later in 1718, they have no share whatsoever in God's holy, sealed, heavenly city. And no one who is unclean will ever enter the holy city, ever. The new Jerusalem. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, as we'll see in Revelation 21, 27. So, beloved, either you and I, either we, people, will be washed now, washed in the blood of the Lamb that flowed from Calvary for the forgiveness of all our sins and all our rebellion, and then be dressed by God in the righteousness of Christ alone through His resurrection, which is our justification, or we will be trampled then in our own blood, since we rejected the provision of our redemption in Christ. Verses 6 through 13 that preceded this section put before us the reality of judgment or reward. These last verses in chapter 14 put before us salvation or reckoning. Those are the options. Those are the options because God is going to harvest this earth. He's going to harvest the entire thing. All will stand before the risen and reigning Christ. For some, that's what they've been waiting for. He speaks in Second Thessalonians of, of those that have been waiting that will marvel at Him when He appears. But the rest will stand before Him in terrifying condemnation. There's one thing that preserves that choir army back in verses 1 through 5. One thing that made us wheat to be harvested rather than grapes to be crushed. One thing. Only one God can mark us for preservation. There will be blood at the end of all things. A lot of it. But whose is a matter of faith in Christ now. Jesus stands at the center of all human history, beloved. There, there always has been, there always will be a reckoning. It's, it's important for us to embrace this in the ebb and flow of daily life because we get very angry at injustice, whether it's on a large scale, whether we see it as, as, a, as a social issue, which I, I suppose in some cases I can certainly understand that, that there have been injustices in our history, certainly. But the, the kind that really deal with us on a daily basis and work on our hearts, and why isn't that person getting punished for what they did to me? Why isn't this being known? Why isn't this being called out? Why isn't this, right? And there are reckonings on the earth in real time. It seems that God has brought the Southern Baptist Convention to a reckoning. And listen, I come from that. So I'm not teeing off on our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, but I don't know how much you read in the news or here, but they are in trouble. There has been a revelation, a list of over some 400 pastors that committed sexual abuse, and some were addressed and taken care of. Others were swept under the rug. The victims were demonized. It is very ugly, very bad. And if we hide sin and hide it over time, I, I, without repentance, I don't know what we think we're doing. Right? And all these little reckonings that sometimes come in 
this current day and sometimes don't. Beloved, you and I need to understand for our sanity, for our peace, for our faith, there always has been, there always be, will be a final reckoning that makes everything right. Everything. Right? It's remember this, particularly thinking of things that have been done to you, okay? Times that you've been a victim, that you've been hurt. We often wonder, don't we? Well, if, if, if it's another believer that has hurt us, well, they're forgiven, so I guess they don't, I guess they get off scot-free. How are they forgiven? Because Jesus was punished for their sin. Right? We understand that, right? That when we ache and groan and cry out for justice, when we've been victimized, and that's real and genuine, God is not looking over that. That was addressed when God poured out His wrath on His own Son for us. So that sin against you by a brother or sister, beloved, that's been addressed in Christ. This is why the gospel is so important. That Christ crucified is so important because He's accomplishing so much there, including blood crying out to the ground to God for justice. So it's not that when a believer hurts you or somebody that's a believer now hurts you that what they did to you is just exited out into space and never really dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross by Christ. Now, the flip side of that we're seeing in this text is that either Christ has covered all our sin and the sins that were committed against us if they were committed by those who are also in Christ or there's still blood that needs to be exacted and it will be for those that don't come under the banner of Christ and His salvation. But nothing, and I know I've said this before, nothing will go undealt with in eternity, beloved. Nothing. Nothing. In Jesus is the only place we can be forgiven. The only place where there is reconciliation. Do you know what's amazing is in salvation, it's not like I didn't do the sins I've done. That's not how I got salvation. I'm still technically guilty of committing all these sins. I did them. I did everything Jesus had to die to forgive me of. The difference is that God no longer counts those things against me because Christ took that guilt, all of it, for all my sin, completely on himself, took them away, and then gave me in their place his perfect righteousness. So the sickle will be swung, beloved, but because of Christ, because of his blood, his literal blood, And its value before God. Believers will be reaped as grain for his harvest and gathered safely into his barn for all eternity. There's basically one place to get a fireproof outfit for judgment. Only one. Which, again, judgment always sounds so archaic, doesn't it? You know, it's just, it's so unpleasant to think about and, beloved, listen. For there to be peace, God is going to make war and put every rebellion down. That's what we want. And our sin caused this war. And God says, all right. Only now 
for these thousands of years. He is merciful to the very ones that if they don't come into Christ, he will crush. But he's not crushing them today. This isn't just judgment we're seeing. This is the end of the curse. God will bring an end to all of this. God will bring an end to evil and suffering and death and pain and hurt and sin forever. And either at the end of all things, we will, it will be revealed that we're covered and marked by the blood of his son, or we will shed our own in judgment. If Jesus doesn't cover us, we cannot, will not be saved. And listen, it doesn't matter if we like this. These images, it doesn't matter how we feel about it because we aren't in charge. Our God, our Savior says this is what is going to happen. This is the way it is. Because the one who sits on the throne of the universe is the one whose blood was shed for salvation. God's son shed his own blood so that our blood never needs to be shed for our sins. How can, I mean, like we will never pay the price we owe. We'll never pay it. He offers us salvation from his own judgment for not being covered by Christ to all who receive his promise. And listen, if, if you're sitting there tonight, I know that probably everybody in here is born again. And so you think, what does, why would I, you know, I'm not going to experience being crushed like a grape. I, I don't need to be afraid. Praise God. But every single one of us knows people who do need to be afraid. And this is what they need to hear. The gospel that saved you and me. Because we don't deserve to be grain, beloved. We deserve to be crushed like a grape under the feet of Almighty God. And the only reason we won't be is the blood and the righteousness of someone else. That's the good news they need to hear. The church needs to be reminded of it, not because God is going to crush us. Praise God, He won't because of Christ. But these are the things that ought to move us towards proclaiming Christ. God does not count His Son's blood cheap. And as of this moment tonight, at the sound of my voice, He hasn't yet swung His sickle. So, you are invited to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Every unbeliever you know, as of right now, is invited to receive the forgiveness of sins. So let it not shock us anymore that God is just, and therefore in His design will bring wrath on His enemies. That ought to be a no-brainer, and if we're honest, that's what we want, as long as it's not on us, right? Let it shock us that this same God who talks like this, The same God we have all offended is merciful to give salvation to all those without exception who receive it. And every time we, tr we do you notice what we do? We try. There has to be people in our mind that grace can't cover because I think somehow we think that there will like be an injustice. You know? Because you... You have horrible things that are happening in the world right now. We're only, we only hear about some of them. You know, whatever's going to push the state's narrative, that's what we're going to hear about. And it's going to be skewed anyway. 
But when you start to think about people that have killed children, in particular, right, the, the, the most vulnerable among us, right, and, and we ought to weep over 19 children shot to death in a classroom. We also ought to weep about the approximately 4,000 little babies that were murdered yesterday in the womb of their mother. And this world is sick, beloved. It's evil. And when we start to think about those that hurt the vulnerable and the weak, and it's like we don't want grace to cover them because we don't want them to get off scot-free. Beloved, they get off scot-free. Jesus didn't. And for all who believe, again, please remember, beloved, rest in the fact that God does not erase sins. He covers them. He covers them. What would be wonderful is if the dirtiest, murderous, perverted person that's on planet Earth was broken by the grace of God and came to Christ. That would be the best thing that could happen. Right? Because that means the judgment for that sin doesn't even need an eternity to be punished for. Christ reconciled it and covered it all on His own. And it's finished. God will harvest the earth to reap His faithful redeemed and His enemies. And there the blood of Christ will save forever while the blood of the unredeemed will flow forever. So I hope none of us in this room are playing games with our own souls. I pray to God that we are all what we confess publicly. I don't have a reason to think any of us aren't. That's not what I mean at all. I just hope we all believe Christ for our salvation and aren't just going through the motions, right? Not just because the sickles will swing, but because Jesus is a great Savior. And to know Him and His love is better than life itself.